As you take your seats, have you ever asked the question, what does it look like to be a normal Christian? I mean, what, what, what does it look like to have a normal Christian experience? And we can go a step further. What does a normal church experience look like? You know, I, I was actually raised in church. And the fact that, that I'm in church and I'm actually preaching in a church is a testimony to, gra- to the grace of God. I was raised a pastor's kid. And we all know about pastor's kids. And I, I remember in church growing up and, you know, one of my first memories was being left in the nursery, which was kind of like being brought to Alcatraz and just left you didn't know if mom would come back, and they, they had people working in the nursery who hated kids, you know, and you, and you hated going to the nursery. And I remember other things about growing up. I remember we actually had a meet and greet time during the middle of the service, and everybody would meet and greet, and we don't do that here because we care about introverts, all right? And some of y'all get that later. And so, so everybody would just greet people that they might, may not really want to greet. And there was this lady named Miss Bidwick, and she had this candy jar, and she would give out candy during the meet and greet time. So it was just like, like you guys thought that was a mass migration, all the kids going to Sunday school. It, I mean, we would just gather around here. She would give out, give out candy. And I, I think about vacation Bible school and youth camps and Wednesday night youth group, Wednesday night prayer meeting. I remember hearing complaints from people also. Have you ever, those of you who've been to church, you ever heard anybody in church complain? I know you probably haven't before. But, but there was this lady at the church I was in, in another state, and uh, they, they had a, an area of the parking lot that had not yet been paved, and it was covered in rocks. And she said, until we get that paved, I'm not coming back to church because those rocks mess up my shoes. And something about that didn't sound exactly right. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of ideas about what church is. I've been to churches before, and there's gyms. What a cool way to do outreach. Like, a church has a gym. That's an awesome way to do outreach. We, you know, we also have a Rocky Mountain Baptist Church. We have a, a building. And we have, this is wild, we have a sign. Now, you almost will get in a car wreck if you try to look at it when you're driving, but we have a sign in a building. You guys are like, this is a weird sermon. Stay with me. We also, in the building, have things called seats that have padding on the bottom part. In many churches, they have organs. Many churches have organs that if they would have prayed about it, they would have not bought the organ and they would have financed 20 missionary families for 200 years. That's what church is about. In many churches, if they've been there a long time, you will find plaques dedicated to people. Now we're preaching. Everything, I mean everything, I mean a toilet, roll of toilet paper has a plaque on it dedicated to somebody. Like the whole building's dedicated to people, but if you're in those kind of churches, you may want to just do that and then say in memory of Jesus. Rock the boats. 
Many churches are driven and filled and dominated by this committee mindset that everybody has to be on on every decision. And if they're not, then people say, I didn't know about that. And it, and it creates issues. Not only that, in Rocky Mount Baptist Church especially, we have a worship guide where you can see what we're talking about in the sermon and see what songs are going to be sung. That's weird. We'll see in a few minutes why it's so weird. Not only that, but if you're new with this, you should look on either end of the seat that you're there on, and you'll see Bibles. I mean, we have so many Bibles, not only the ones that we put there, and that's a gift to you if you don't have one, but we've got a lot of people who love Jesus so much they have their name on their Bible, and they leave it at church. I mean, we, we on the average at the office, get about one call a year. I lost my Bible. Is it there? And all of these things, for some of us, we think that this is normal Christian experience. Like it's normal to go to a place like this and hear powerful, powerful worship music like we heard today. Musicians and, and singers. But here's what we want to get over this morning. This is what we want to get through, that most of us, including myself, we think that we've had a normal church experience, and here's the way that we know that. We make decisions based upon what we like in church as a, based on the premise of does this make me comfortable? Is this what I think should happen in church? We had some friends over for New Year's Eve, and we brought in the New Year with a bonfire. I, I think if burning things was a spiritual gift, I would have it. And um, we had a pretty big bonfire, and then Chris Holland and Joseph Hawley showed up, and I mean, it was like, should we even do this? Like, big bonfire. And we, we burned it. We had a Christmas tree in the middle, and it was awesome just to see that stuff go up, and we roasted marshmallows and had a great time. And, you know, I checked the next day after we put the fire out, and there was hardly anything left but a few burning embers and some nails from some pallets that we had burned. I began to think about that. I said, you know, when the fires come... It burns up everything that can't resist fire. And when persecution comes, it burns up all of that stuff that we think is normal in church and normal in Christianity, and we are left with the only thing that matters, and it is Jesus Christ. In January of last year, World Magazine published an article by J.C. Derrick from Open Doors International, and the article was, Worst Persecution Yet to Come. Islam poses the biggest threat to Christians in Africa and the Middle East. And that article was dead on the money. 2014 and 2015, we have seen a slaughter and a persecution of Christians in specifically the Middle East like we have not seen since the communist regimes of the 20th century. ISIS has stepped up the attack on Christians in that area of the world. And many of us, we, we look at the TV and sometimes we don't know what we're supposed to do about it, but we're moved to do something. And here's what I want us to think about this morning Many of us cannot go there, but we can support our church here as we seek to support the church there. That's for us to work, earn money, save, give money with a global Christ-minded focus. And I think for a lot of us coming into 2016, what dominates our thoughts is 
recreation. We make our financial decisions based upon trips and based upon stuff. But I don't know about you guys, but the Lord has worked in my heart to become ever more mindful of our brothers and sisters that are experiencing persecution. So here's some facts about the persecuted church. If you've never heard about it, what exactly is the persecuted church and why does it matter? According to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world's population now currently lives in areas with severe religious restrictions and many of these people are Christians. Also, according to the United States Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Now, you as I, as American Christians, we have to come to the place, brothers and sisters, to where we get it, that persecution, physical harm, economic penalties, physical threats against family that has been always historically normal for Christians. It has been absolutely normal. From the Romans who tried to destroy Christianity to the Jewish religious leaders that tried to feed the Christians to the Romans to feed the Christians to the lions, all the way through the Middle Ages to the Roman Catholic Church tried to stamp out those who would print Bibles in the languages that the people actually could read and understand. All the way, even in Lutheran Germany, there were many of those Protestants who persecuted our forefathers, the Anabaptists, who said that baptism doesn't save, but that baptism is a picture of what Christ has done all the way through the religious wars of the 15 through the 1800s, all the way to when communism began to make its way onto the world stage. And currently, right now, there are, most persecution occurs in communist and Muslim countries. And here's the facts. Out of the top 50 countries currently where Christians face the greatest persecution, four of them are communist, Two are Buddhist nationalists, which means that if you're of this ethnicity, like in Myanmar, Burma, you will be Buddhist, you will not be Christian, and if you are, we'll persecute you for it. One Hindu nationalist, aka India. Two drug cartel corrupted. And get this, out of 50 top persecution countries, 41 are Islamic. We know that each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. We know that each month, 214 church buildings are destroyed and Christian properties along with it. And there are, based upon what we know, there are 772 forms of violence against Christians. This is, has everything to do from beatings to abductions to rapes, arrests, and forced marriages in the Islamic world. You say, well, Jeff, why does persecution actually exist in our world? Well, there's been two engines that have, in the modern world, that have pushed persecution against Christians. Number one, it would be statism. It's the belief that there should be a massive government that controls every aspect of people's lives, including their beliefs about God. This is where people in these countries, namely communist countries, do not have basic rights and freedoms. One of the ways that you know these countries, a couple of examples would be China and North Korea, would be that in communism, 
There's the idea that everyone should be equal in this sense. Everyone should not be equal in the sense that everyone has equal opportunities, but everyone should have equal results regardless of how hard you work. The communist phrase going back to Karl Marx is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It's the idea of stealing from the rich to give to the poor. It goes by another name of wealth redistribution. And those of you that have a little bit of age on you, you remember when Russia was communist. Did not say the Russian communist nation. It said the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Socialism is communism minus killing everybody to institute communism. In communist countries, now get this, the state or the government replaces God. It means everything rights from the food comes from the government. In a statist communist country, churches are required to register. In other words, if you do not want to register your church, you cannot legally have one. Well, what comes along with church registration? Before a pastor or anyone brings a message, they must submit in writing their sermon to the local politburo the relig- or the, the political office, and it has to be signed off on by the government before the preacher can preach it in a communist country. What happened in Russia is that many of the church buildings had been, were blown up and Christians were imprisoned. Not only that, in a statist communist country, they always moved to take away the right of religion, free speech, but also the right of people to defend themselves. They disarmed the population before they slaughtered the population. Not only that, in a socialist communist country, before they really instituted persecution on Christians, they instituted a heavy progressive income tax because what that does is it increases people's dependence upon the government. And the final goal is the abolition of private property and the government controls education. And the government does not educate, the government indoctrinates. It means that homeschooling and private schooling would be absolutely illegal. And this is the history of the last century. Ever since the Red Revolution in Russia from 1918 all the way to today, when there are even people in the American government and those who are running for political office who say that socialism is what we should aspire to. You see, communism is largely crumbled, but socialism is alive and well. And here's what Richard Wormbrand, he was a man from Romania who was persecuted for his Christian faith. This is what he said in 1967. He said, every freedom-loving man has two fatherlands, his own and America. Today, America is the hope of every enslaved man because it is the last bastion of freedom in the world. Only America has the power and the spiritual resources to stand as a barrier between militant communism and the people of the world. It is the last dike holding back the rampaging floodwaters of militant communism. If it crumples, there is no other dike. There is no other dam, no other line of defense to fall back upon. America is the last hope of millions of enslaved peoples. They look to it as their second fatherland and it lies in their hopes and prayers. And he continues, I have seen fellow prisoners in communist prisons beaten, tortured, with 50 pounds of chains on their legs, praying for America, that the dike will not crumble and that it 
will remain free. And the fall of communism in large part is attributed to the United States standing strong against a communistic regime that says, number one, there is no God. And who takes the place? The government. That's been our last century. And what we're facing in the 21st century is persecution not just coming from statism, not just coming from communism, but persecution that comes from religion. False gods and cultures that are threatened by the gospel. Christians are persecuted in India and in Buddhist countries for their Christian faith. And we all know if you follow the news at all, how, quote, moderate Muslim countries behave against Christians. And here's one that's not so moderate. Let me give you an example. Saudi Arabia, to where we buy a lot of our oil from. In Saudi Arabia, currently, it is illegal to build a church building. Cannot be done. Nina Shi, who's the director of the Washington-based Hudson's Institute Center for Religious Freedom, said, quote, in the Daily Mail UK, a large newspaper in the United Kingdom, quote, Saudi Arabia is continuing the religious cleansing that has always been its official policy. It is the only nation state in the world with the official policy of banning all churches. The 21st century, if we're paying attention and we stop the brain drain of following the Kardashians, and actually think like rational people about what's going on in the world, what we're seeing is that Islamic fundamentalism is turning out to be the driving force to eradicate Christianity in the world. Even last week, Hillary Clinton, no friend to Bible-believing Christians because of her continued advocacy that there's no problem with taking the life of innocent unborn children. Even Hillary Clinton admitted this past week that ISIS is actually committing religious genocide on Christians. That's something that the current administration has not yet said. It's a religious cleansing which it's a good question, why is our government not giving the genocide tag to what's going on in Iraq and Syria? You say, well, Jeff, I, what am I supposed to do about this? There's a great article by Russell Moore, and it's, the title is, Pray for ISIS to be defeated or converted. And in that article, Russell Moore argues, a world in which murderous gangs commit genocide without penalty is not a merciful world, but an unjust horror show. The thief on the cross, a Middle Eastern terrorist by Rome standards and his act of faith, did not believe that his salvation exempted him from justice. He confessed that his sentence was justice and that he was receiving the due reward for our deeds, even as he cried out to Jesus for merciful entrance into the kingdom of Christ. We ought indeed to pray for the gospel to go forward and that there might be a new Saul of Tarsus turned away from murdering to the gospel witness. At the same time, we also ought to pray with the martyrs in heaven for justice against those who do such wickedness, praying for the military defeat of our enemies and that they might turn to Christ. These are not contradictory prayers because salvation doesn't mean turning an eye away from justice. 
We can pray for gospel rootedness in the Middle East, and we can pray to light up their world like the 4th of July at the same time because we are, after all, people of the cross. And why do we care about our persecuted family? Why do we care? Because they are our family. In your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, the Bible says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, then all rejoice together. The context of 1 Corinthians 12 is spiritual gifts that God gives to the church. Every single one of us, if we've been saved, God's given us a spiritual gift to serve him by serving people with. The context there is that even in the, in, in the church in which God has given all of these gifts, when one person suffers, we all suffer. See, there's no American Christians, no Syrian Christians, no Chinese Christians. We don't have the American church. We are brothers and sisters. And in fact, let's go a step further. It's even closer than your blood if your blood doesn't know Jesus Christ because the family of God will continue after death throughout all eternity, when if you have people in your life and even that they're family members and they hate Christ and they will not turn, there will be a time where that death will be a complete and eternal separation. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Psalm 82, verses three and four says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And in just a few moments, we're going to show you a video of what it means to be a Christian in Syria. You know, guys, when, when I look at this stuff, I am just so moved. And it's like the Lord asked me through the Spirit, said, Jeff, do you even know what you're talking about? Like I've preached in a lot of different places, a lot of different states. I, I've been able to do jail ministry and go overseas and do stuff. I've been in pastoral ministry for a few years. I've talked to people who know their stuff. But I've always been to churches that have signs. Most of our brothers and sisters in history and now, they've got to meet in private. I'd encourage you to Turn your eyes to the screens as we look at this video, a short clip, a snippet of what does it mean to be a Christian right now in the country of Syria. Let's roll it. We were praying for revival believing God would do a big work in Syria. Then the war came. Now the terrorists are attacking Christian homes, churches, and even our children. Their goal is to empty Syria of its Christians. We hate the spirit of Islam that is destroying our country, but we love our Muslim neighbors. They come to us and say, in the name of our God, terrorists rape and kill, where is God? We tell them about Jesus, and many are coming to know him. Still others say, we are like living in hell.
One day while I was praying, I asked God what he would have me do to be his witness. But he only asked me, will you give me your life? As I prayed, I understood he wanted all of me. And I said yes. If the time came, I was willing to die for Jesus. The next day, while I was praying, I asked God again what he would have me do. This time, he asked me, Are you willing to give me your husband's life? It is not easy to be ready to die. My husband and I prayed about this together. We said yes to God. The third day was the most difficult. On this day, God asked me if I was willing to give up my children's lives. The terrorists know who we are and that we share Jesus with Muslims. It is not safe for our family. My husband and I prayed and fasted, and together we agreed. God gave us our precious children. He has the freedom to take them back. When we agreed to put our children on the altar, I knew I had to tell them the truth. I told them that it was possible that men with swords may come through our door, men who didn't know Jesus. They may say bad things to us and try to force us to convert to Islam. But no matter what they say, we should not answer them. We should only tell them that Jesus loves them and that we forgive them. I told them that we might see some blood and have some pain, but it would only be for a little while. we should just close our eyes and when we open them we will be with Jesus am I a good mother to have to tell my children such things I also told them that as long as God wants us to be safe we will be safe that he is in control even during the bloodshed during the killing, he is carrying our future. This is what it means to be a Christian in Syria. So is, is that what it looks like to be, historically speaking, a follower of Jesus Christ? You know, um, <clears throat> as I was preparing 
to talk about this, it was like the Lord was saying, Jeff, you need, you need to look within. I mean, what do you do with this? You need to ask yourself seriously, do I make excuses for why I'm disobedient to the gospel? Do I make excuses for the ways that I am disobedient to Christ? Am I guilty of the sin of silence, of talking about everything under the sun except for Christ? Do I have to address the misplaced priorities in my life, idolatry, which would be sinful financial choices having to do with the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, trips and fun things that simply dominate my thinking where I leave missionaries strapped and without any resources. Everything from the tithe, which is not mine, it's all God's, to the danger of flashy giving, wanting to give to certain things that sound great as opposed to supporting my local church because I can do that. Me thinking that my money is mine instead of remembering what's been said by a great pastor that I do not serve money, money serves me as I serve God. And for the sin of hypocrisy, of saying that I believe the gospel, but I refuse to obey it. I was reminded of a statement by Charles Spurgeon. He said, quote, I don't think the devil cares how many churches we build if we only have lukewarm preachers and lukewarm people in them. Lukewarm means to be Christian in our words, but financially, verbally, the way that we live, Christ never, ever, ever shows up. So I pray for our faith family as we walk into 2016 that we would look up to God in faithfulness, in thankfulness of saying, God, in your, in your foreknowledge and you knew it was gonna happen, you chose me to be an American, to be raised to go to a church with a sign and a church that has Bibles and a website so everybody knows we're here. That's not normal. I don't know what normality is. And we're gonna have a response time here in just a moment. We're gonna sing an old song about Jesus and I'm gonna encourage you to just join me at this altar area and just thank God for the freedom that he's given us. But you know, the other side of it is that we may miss out on rewards if we use our American economic freedom for ourselves. Doesn't mean you can't drive something nice, doesn't mean you can't go to nice places or eat good food, but what it means is that all those things are not the ends. They are means, they are catalysts, they are something to produce a higher end, which is to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. To where what drives us is not retirement. What drives us is making much of God in our families and in our work, everything that we do, to thank God for what he's given us, to thank God for not killing us before now. Because every single one of us, including myself, should have been in hell a long time ago. And if you don't think that, then I don't know what you're smoking. It's true, God's grace, we should look to God and then let us look outward to say, you know what, I'm gonna get involved. I'm gonna begin to pray for the persecuted church. A lot of those times, we, guys, we can't go there. We just can't. We can't drop into a middle of a war zone, but we can pray. Often in American Christianity, we say stuff like, well, I've done all that I can do. I guess all there is left to do is pray. May God have mercy on us. 
May God have mercy on us. What that's saying is that God, I've done as much as I can do because I'm all that in a bag of chips. I was born in America, the good old US of A, and some were even born in Texas. Here's what I've done in my life, here's my degrees, here's my bank accounts, here's my, here's my car, here's what I can do. And God, if I can't do it, I guess I'll just leave it to you. That is insane. Do we realize how crazy that is? That's absolutely nuts. But that's the way that we naturally think. So I pray, would you do this with me as we walk forward in 2016 to not use prayer as a last resort, but to use prayer as a first response. I mean, the 911, like the first responders, the guy, I mean, they're there. The first responders, let us turn to God and say, God, I do not know how to fix the Islamic world. I do not know how, what to do with North Korea. I don't know what to do with Syria and Iraq. I don't know, but I'm praying for you to save the Muslims who are persecuting the Christians. Save them, God. And what we'll find is that when we are so focused on another world and we're so focused on the people here that don't know Jesus Christ, we won't sit around being all depressed about our problems. Why? Because we're thinking about ourselves less. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, then all rejoice together. And let's not be, let's not be a freak show on the historical spectrum of Christianity. Freak show, it's something that's just odd. It doesn't make sense. For church to be about our pews or our seats or our music style or how we dress, our building, our sign, website, all of those things God can use. But that's, if that's what we're thinking about, historic Christians, they would look at us and be like, dude, what are you? Like, well, we're Christians. I've never heard a Christian even be worried about the, how does that drive you if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ? It's like God just rocked my world to say, I mean, do you even know what you're talking about? And for some of us, we have this thing called false American guilt. We don't enjoy the blessings that God has given us. That's not the point of this message. The point of this message is not to make anyone here feel guilty about being an American feel bad about being able to get a job to provide for your family, that is not the point. The point is how do we respond to what is going on in the world? We respond to God here and now. You see, it starts here and now. What is God calling us to do? For some, you, you, you've played this little game saying that you're a follower of Christ, but he is nowhere more a reality than your life in your life than a leprechaun. Never there. Something that's spoken, but it's something that's not real. The response today is to give your life to Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, and to be saved. For some, you need to stop caring about what other people think and be willing to follow Christ in believer's baptism in front of people and to say, I am absolutely excited about the possibility of being in an embarrassing situation for Jesus Christ. For some, you need to get your finances figured out. Maybe it's, maybe it's an issue of just saying, you know what, Jeff, I've just been walking through 2015, man, and I've just been going on autopilot. I have not thanked Christ in I don't know how long for all that he's done. Why don't you come with me during this time of invitation 
and just thank him for what he's done.